0: My skin is black. What you My um, skin, yeah. black. I
1: feel what so good to be black right now. Is black. <laughs> what you look
0: Embracing. Is black. Welcome to episode forty-nine of the Black and Fashion podcast. I want to thank everyone for tuning in today. The first thing I want to do is make sure I acknowledge all of our current sponsors. Uh, please make sure you guys follow Six Twenty Style for all of your casual and luxury ready to wear garments she is the queen of the flare pant please also make sure make sure you follow and book nisha star aesthetics and we also have our newest member of our black girl sponsorship team um it is by the rich nurse the rich nurse is a brand that empowers nurses to live life abundantly through fashion they sell clothing accessories and beauty products for nurses Presently Rich Nurse is offering 15% off for all the listeners using our promo code blackinfashion 15 Check them out and send them all your send them to all your nurse friends to www.richnurse.com, shoprichnurse.com on Instagram, okay? So I'm going to jump right in. I have Jessica Couch with me. Say hi, Jessica. How are you? I can't complain, you know, just surviving quarantine. <laughs> That's what we all are doing, trying to make sure we survive this quarantine. And then the, the, I'm so glad that you came over this episode because I'm thinking how much, like, what you do in technology is certainly playing a very huge role right now. So let me let me tell you guys a little bit about Jessica Marana Couch. Uh, she is a Fit Technology expert, strategic, Strategic... Uh, what am I? I am tongue-tied today. <laughs> strategic advisor, writer, and speaker. She is the founder of Luxor and Finch Consulting. Jessica received her undergraduate degree from North Carolina State University's College of Textiles and Fashion Product Development, her master's in digital innovation and fit from Cornell University under the guidance of Professor Susan B. Ashdown. In 2008, she received her certificate for digital product management, Modern Fundamentals from University of Virginia. Since the completion of her master's, she has worked with and advised numerous companies, brands, and retailers in the fit technology space. Jessica has published over 70 articles on the matter of fit and fit tech, a thesis on fit and perception, perception, and curated events and panels on the subject of fashion and fit technology. That is one heck of a bio, Jessica. You have accomplished a lot. (laughs) Very early on.
1: Thank you so much
0: very early on so the way I like to roll with the podcast is uh I like to start off with like a little icebreaker it's called this or that so I'm just gonna name off a couple of things and you tell me which one you prefer over the other okay okay wedges or mules heels well they're both heels so wedges or mules
1: oh you said mules I guess mules Mm. I think mules are kind of classy now
0: yeah they are for sure um motorcycle jackets or trench coats
1: Ooh. I'm still into motorcycle jackets.
0: Okay. Um fedoras or like
1: fedora. No fedora. Or
0: berets Fedoras or berets.
1: a beret. A beret, a beret. A beret.
0: And last but not least, side boob or under boob.
1: Ooh. I actually I'm starting to embrace the under boob as it gets uh warmer and it's like beta suit season.
0: Uh absolutely okay so we're gonna jump right in and i have one more segment that i'd like to start up is there anyone in the media that you felt like slayed this week during this quarantine like people are definitely uploading their throwback pictures because no one's going anywhere but did you see anything out there that's like okay quarantine slay
1: oh no, i guess i'm just really amused by all the tiktok videos uh, yes. Yeah, so the the families who are all jumping in to do the TikTok, I think that's cute.
0: Yes, I love it. Absolutely. Okay, so tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and, like, where you're from.
1: So I'm from North Carolina. I'm from Durham, uh, which was, like, one of the original <laughs> Black Wall Street. So I grew up in a very, like, wonderful place where Black people were prominent, Black people were educated, they owned a lot of things. So it seemed very natural to me early on to take the entrepreneurship route because I was surrounded by so many. Um, My mother and father have a law firm together. They're entrepreneurs. So kind of getting out here and doing your own thing was always something I was very much interested in. And then where I'm from, we were always proud to be black. We never felt inadequate. It was just a nice, interesting place. And I think a lot of people don't know that about Durham. But additionally, North Carolina used to be the textile capital of like the U.S., So we had all the, like, the textile mills, the manufacturers. It was a really big deal here. So when I chose to do my undergraduate at, LA NC State and their College of Textiles, it was because I had an interest in fashion. Um, My aunt was a seamstress. So I was like, you know, this seems like the smart route to go. However, that was in 2006. And as we all know, in 2008, the economy crashed. And so all of those available textile opportunities kind of went overseas. And all these mills and manufacturers that are needed right now because of the pandemic we're in, uh, they disappeared as well. So it was a very interesting time growing up and choosing to go to the path that I chose. Nice. I did not know a that about North
0: Carolina. Like, I yes. knew they had, you know, had a few textile places, but not to that extent.
1: Yeah, they were huge in textiles. Like now, not so much, but I, I think we have the opportunity I mean, I know it's a a lot of terrible things going on with the pandemic, but one of the things that it's exposed is that it is a need for American manufacturing beyond just conversation.
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, that's exactly what my business is. Uh, Everything I do is right here in New York.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And it's an absolute need for it because it's kind of like 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 we're in a position where we're not gonna be able to meet demands and supplies because we don't have the equipment and the logistics and the supply chains to do so. And um, it's just really interesting because going to the College of Textiles, we got to see firsthand every piece of machinery that goes from like making the thread to making the garment to cutting and sewing and all of those things behind it. So like we were very excited about this industry early on and then to see those jobs disappear and to see where we are right now where we can't like supply our medical facilities because we don't have the infrastructure. It's just, it's mind blowing, honestly.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, you're right about that. Absolutely right. that's crazy because that was one of my questions too. (laughs) like how I feel, that was like down the line a little bit but you got right on in, so we might as well keep talking about it so what was like um well let's discuss like again like your love for fashion like where it came from like how uh how did you go about creating luxor and finch
1: Great question so the story
0: is I've always loved fashion like
1: I love to change my clothes like three four times a day I'm one of those people that like I dress my mood and like I absolutely mm-hmm. have to dress how I feel what I'm wearing is a projection of who I am. So it matters to me. And it's interesting because when I was in like middle school and things, I went to these private schools where we had strict dress codes and I used to get in trouble all the time for two reasons. One, I want to wear what I want because there's so much of my identity. And I think a lot of people are like that. Like what you wear and how you present yourself is very unique to you, but it matters. It's like the way you position yourself visually matters and it can sound superficial, but it's not. But the second reason why I always got in trouble is because my body shape has always been different than my peers. So like I went to predominantly white, um, private middle schools and of course Mm -hmm. as someone of color I developed a body much faster than my peers and so we could wear the same things and I was constantly getting in trouble because what I wore it was a Christian school they were like what you wore you know wasn't quite in the guidelines of what we expect our students to wear but it would literally be the same things as other girls or even because I'm tall I'm 5'10 I'm curvy I'm thick you know stallion gang bang bang but like bang bang (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, it's always been a problem when you have a body and you have curves. It's like you evoke a different type of attention and it's not my job to mitigate that attention. So my love for fashion came more about, came from me wanting to defend my identity and who I was. And having an aunt who was like a seamstress, she taught me early on how to sew and she used to make us custom garments all the time. So we'd have custom jumpers, custom hats, like everything. Like So when I watch you do your work it's so reminiscent of me like watching my aunt who used to do people's wedding dresses and prom dresses and like tailoring and all these things like very hands-on and I just loved it from that time also like my parents being professionals used to have tailors come to the house and create all their suits so I got to be very like active in watching like what dressing meant how like you know power dressing could stand you out when my mom wanted to go to court she wore something different than when she's going to go get to the grocery store and it's just like it does this love for fashion and I was very creative like I sketch a lot I designed a lot so I thought I was going to be a fashion designer so when I was in school I did the fashion design program and my senior year in college um after coming back from Egypt that's where the name Luxor and Finch came from I had lived in Egypt for like a month and a half and when oh yeah it was a completely dope experience I I told myself since I was little I have to go to Egypt because when I was very young, I used to be a nerd. I was like, I think I want to be an Egyptologist. After going to Egypt, I had this very profound like, experience of understanding kind of the duality of nature of women. And at that time, you know, people were saying like hijabs were oppressive and they were terrible. But if you lived in a country where there were um, Muslims present, you realized that it wasn't oppressive to wear a hijab. It was an expression of their faith and what they were dedicated to. And we had this completely different idea of it. And we as Americans were like, you need to show your skin. That's what's up. But when I was in Egypt, we also traveled to Dubai and there were women covered head to toe, but with Chanel bags and like Louis Vuitton this and like beat faces. And they looked richer than anybody who was showing skin and ass at the time. And it blew my mind. I was like, you're in a, a burqa head to toe looking like a million dollars. And we as Americans over here trying to show every inch of skin looking cheap. And it it helped me to really understand this duality of nature of women. So I'm like, you know, we're supposed to be coy, but we're also supposed to be bold. We're like daughters, but we're also mothers. We're sexual, but we're also nurturing. Like I have this understanding about like, women and so when I came back I wanted to design this collection that was about what I saw so I had hijabs in my collection and I combined like lycra and silks and like uh, I did all the prints of the fabrics and stuff and make I guess I should you some pictures of this just in case for reference
0: but like yeah I would love to see this (laughs) absolutely
1: I'd love to show you but like the name Luxor and Finch came from that duality of nature I wanted to express Luxor being the more like rich and luxur- luxurious side, like leathers and dark colors and black. Cause I'm a fan of black. I wear black 24 seven, but then fin- Finch representing a bird and like the freedom and the delicateness of women. And I created that name to kind of like show that duality and represent that in the collection. And so, um, I was so inspired by the collection after undergrad, But I was like, okay, I think I want to open up a women's contemporary store. So I opened up an online-only store to kind of fill the gaps where I'm from. Like there was a need for more, um, for clothing that was more hip and for women of different sizes here in the South. Um, During undergrad, I worked a lot at Nordstrom and they had a great inventory, but it never was quite what people were looking for. And they also didn't do a great job at the time of listening to the customers about like, hey, you need to bring these products in. So I figured that my store could kind of fill that need. And so I opened that store and I operated it with a partner for about three years. My partner left, but I kept it. And it was during the time that I was operating the store that I realized that like when I was putting product on people who looked like my targeted consumers, they were buying it more and returning it less so i begin to understand like there's a thing when you're putting people and products with people who look like them and they're able to identify people who look like, like them they you manage their expectations and so i begin to wonder like is this just like a phenomenon with my small online store in north carolina or is this like a thing across the board And so shortly after that, um, during that time, my sister was getting her master's at NYU. And so she was like, hey, you should come up to New York. You can sleep on my couch. She sat in the third. And so I left from being like a a business owner. And, you know, I was doing fantastic to saying like, I'm going to end this store and I'm going to chase this idea of fit technology and see how we can see if it's a real issue in the industry. And so I moved to New York, slept on the couch. I had two (laughs) internships. I was working one as like an assistant stylist and the other one I was working in Tracy Reese's uh, design room trying to figure out, like, do other people have issues with fit? If so, like, how are they mitigating? How are they remediating some of these issues? And I realized early on that, like, technology was going to hit back and like nobody in fashion was going to be prepared. And so, like, that is how I started this, like, journey into, like, fit tech. It truly came from like chasing a white rabbit almost and kind of like just having a hunch and going after it and having the experience of being an entrepreneur and then seeing a need in the market and being like, I think I can fulfill it.
0: And what was your biggest struggles when you started out? (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: To be honest, the biggest struggle is when it comes to innovation, you have no idea what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. And there's so many things that don't quite yet exist. That's one struggle, but that's something you can probably get over. The second struggle is mainly that when things are new, people reject it openly. So nobody felt like they were having the fit issue, even though they were seeing returns, even though brands had an issue matching people to product. At that time, you know, you could kind of like write off returns on your balance sheet. People were still kind of shopping in the traditional way. And when you talked about technology and fashion, nobody felt like it was a relationship that needed to come together and actually exist. The hardest thing in the world was um, proving that this was a problem. So sometimes you can be too early. Like you might get hip to something and the timing is off. And I think when I first got into this industry, the timing was off and I had to wait. So the second thing is qualifying yourself and that was pretty tough. So as a Black woman who was in fashion, and I'm sure that, I don't know if you get this too, the minute you mention you're in fashion, people stop taking you seriously. Like they, yeah. yeah absolutely. Absolutely. They think <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, they think you're just, you know, playing around in the store, just picking up stuff and putting it on. Yeah. A lot, time, like Masha,
0: a lot of times, I feel like, a lot of times I'm like, oh, so you're a designer? I'm like, not really, but yeah. <laughs> but
1: <laughs>
0: It's like, I don't even
1: have time to explain this. And that was uh, a hard part for me was like, I knew who I was. I knew I knew what I saw. I understood the innovation needed to happen. I understood the gaps in the industry. But I was not qualified because of how I looked, because people felt like, you know, you don't have the education and the technical background, this, that, and the third. Who are you to say this? So one of the things that I did at the time, I, I wrote a lot. So I had already started a blog because when you own a store, you got to kind of market. So I had a blog from like my store. I got used to writing things, but I started switching my narrative to writing about solutions and problems that people face when running a store. And so that was helpful. But then I realized I was going to have to kind of qualify myself through education to get into the tech field, because at that time, the tech world was still nerdy white men who sat around telling you what you needed and creating products that they never tested with people and trying to tell you how this is the solution. So to kind of like fix that, I was like, I need to go ahead and get my master's in something that gives me credibility.
0: Can I just say like, laugh out loud? Do <laughs> <you
1: like it>? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's still kind of like that. It's like some nerdy women too, but it, it was a different industry. So When I made the decision to go to Cornell, it was from the recommendation of a friend who had went to Cornell. And she was like, I think you should go here because of the flexibility of the programs. And so the program that I did, lucky for me, they let me choose what I wanted to study down to the coursework and everything. I got to choose. I came in, I said, hey, I want to study fit technology. This is why these are the courses I want to take. I took business courses. I took computer science courses. I took ergonomics courses. I took every course that I felt like could support me learning and like immersing myself into the world of tech as it related to fashion so that I could be credible I could speak the language and then I could resolve some of these issues but it was extremely hard timing was the first problem the second problem was qualifying and I think the third problem was just like hello black. <laughs> hello yeah, hello because to me <laughs> being black and being a woman has always been an advantage no matter what Because the first thing people Mm -hmm. do is underestimate you. And I thrive when people underestimate me. Like, it doesn't make me mad. It doesn't make me upset. I love it because I'm going to blow your mind. Because I know I'm smart. I know I'm capable. And I know I come with numbers and facts and not feelings. And I'm not talking about rap. So I don't even know why me being Black should be a problem. But being Black was certainly the elephant in the room every time I walked in I can say that it's always like, but you're black, and it's like, okay, and and
0: you know I should know fit better than anybody. That's the crazy thing because I'm because my people and black people have the biggest issues when they talk to about it. that. Because the most interesting thing
1: about this conversation is the fact that body positivity started with black And we don't get the thank yous for it. Nobody pats us on the back for it. When we were younger in middle school, you had a big booty. My, my older sister had a big booty our whole life. People would be like, oh my God, you have a ghetto booty. Oh my God, I don't like that. Oh my God, is that in the third? However, now when women who don't look like us are buying those bodies and they're sporting them and they're they're doing all their little Instagram stuff to make it look good, now we can embrace body positivity and all this stuff. Yeah.
0: Now. That's oh right. <laughs> It's, it's, it's quite entertaining to say, and my mother and my sister literally same thing, like had the big ghetto booty just skipped over me, but they had them. <laughs> I had to pray for mine. <laughs> they had them from the get-go, and my mom talks about it all the time, how, you know, she used to, you know, always get made fun of but it was always an issue, whereas now it's like super-duper embracing. It's crazy. My mother is uh, 57, so I was just like... That's
1: wonderful, it. and you know, the craziest part is when I go on social media and look at all these body-positive champions, and people are like, oh my God, we love your body, and it's women that are not of color shake my head because at the end of the day we are always the source we are the muse we are the inspiration whether or not we get credit for it we know what's up because curvy bodies was prevalent Mm -hmm. in communities of color and i remember when white communities only thought that boobs and you had to be really skinny and all this stuff and we're it's like I think we never folded on the fact that curves look good because I mean, the response from our community is completely different and now it's being embraced. So it's, it's, it's an interesting issue. And it's even more crazy now because fashion is a $3 trillion industry. It's a huge, huge, huge mm-hmm. industry. And you have about $434 million of transactions that happen on mobile phones alone. you have that black women have this trillion dollars worth of spending power so we are the influencers of the market when you go on instagram when you're looking at makeup you're looking up bodies you're looking up outfits you know what's behind that you see the larger lips you see the small weights the big booties all this everybody want to look brown and all this stuff our influence is incredible but now it's becoming an actual issue so like in the fit industry right now we're in the industry period because everything's a fit I- issue you have 64 billion dollars of returns every year because clothing does not fit well. So out 87% of those returns are due to ill-fitting clothing and people not knowing if something is going to fit their bodies. So let's say that most brands are like, okay, well, returns are a normal thing. We've been dealing with returns for years. That's fine. We'll write it off on our balance sheet. What you can't quite write off is the $50 billion with the dead inventory. And that's inventory that never leaves the sales floor. No one ever buys it. And it shows that there's a disconnect between the supply and demand chain in fashion. Because you are you don't even know right. how to market to your consumers. You don't know what their shape like. You don't know what their body types are like. You don't understand how to like kind of bring that up through the supply chain and translate that into designer information. And then you don't even know how to market to who your intended consumer is. It's as simple as understanding whoever your fit model is, that's who your target is. And it's just...
0: Exactly. Oh, my God, Jessica. <laughs> You when I tell you you are speaking my language, honey. Like you are speaking my language. Like you know, I deal with a lot of new, aspiring, emerging designers, like people that are really starting their brands. And you know, they always say, "Well, who should my fit bottle me?" I'm like, "Well, who's your consumer? Who's your target customer?" And oh, well, they, I want to make clothes for everybody. I'm like, "No, no, 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 no." You have to, and then I find myself having to teach like what that is like. In my consultation, so I created a whole course for it now, okay. for a, like on merchandise management <laughs> and learning differences between the markets. Like, they don't even know the differences between like better and designer exactly. and contemporary and all these different things. Nor, like, if I say supply chain to somebody, they don't no, even know not. what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, now I have created a course for that. But it's like, I feel like a lot of not only is it like you know, the bigger companies they need to write off as a returns, but as a new designer, they're not thinking about it not as at all. A whole, like. Not- as a whole like who exactly is this woman? woman what is she look like what is her background where exactly. does she live Like, and I really have to break that down so now I have like this little paper that I have with me when I do my consultations it's called I have a customer profile segment so I have them look at it and circle what it is Ooh, Like yes, when start, it is. I have them started it. A geographic segmentation, then demographic, then social culture segmentation, effective and cognitive and cognitive segmentation, and then behavior segmentation. Because like you need to understand who, you, you who you're me. selling to. That way you can understand it's, what thank the field. You. And doing. first of all, that's
1: <laughs> genius. So congrats to you yeah. for taking that extra step to do that. Second of all, you could take that right now into brands and they couldn't even fill that out for you. I kid you not. They cannot tell you. They have this very <laughs> high-level um silly. Understanding of consumers that makes no sense. So, like the Victoria's mm. Secrets girl, she goes on yachts and she is a size two and she has big breasts. And, and it's like, <laughs> what does that have to do with production in your fit model? I'm so confused. Like, who are you fitting these products on? Because that's who it's intended for. And that is the issue with fit. It's that just like it. <laughs> we live in a time where fashion is being forced to change its ways because it's decentralizing. You, you know, this isn't the '80s where we were. It was the mall era. And brands were doing these lifestyle brands based on the good data that they had collected, which is great. And that data consisted of demographics and, you know, like purchase data and all that. But one of the things that we saw in the 80s that we don't have now is geographic restriction. So before um, the, the Internet was a prevalent shopping tool, you had catalogs and all that. And that's cool but you had to go into Mm -hmm. these stores that were in your local neighborhoods and things. And then you had to shop there. And if you wanted something else from another store, you know, it was, it was a big, you, you pretty much didn't do that. You could order out of a catalog, you could get us in the store. And as a result, you know, these brands and retailers had the power to say, here's what we're going to make and here's what you're going to buy. And we're just going to push product on you nowadays, because there's so many options, it's like dating. It's like dating when you're a hot cat, just like either you get what I want or I'm done. <laughs> and I think that brands and retailers that have operated so long in this sense of geographic restrictions and all of these other things and all of these misconceptions about what consumers want, that they're kind of not able to shift and understand what consumer centricity looks like. And when it comes to fit, consumer centricity looks like you understanding the body types And how to convey those things and how to manage those expectations. Because you don't have to make a one-for-one product. You just have to let people know how that product is going to interact with their body successfully. And then they can manage their own expectations. They'll understand what to buy and what not to buy. Right now, it's just too much guesswork. Mm -hmm. And that's why people aren't buying at all. Not to mention that if you go into a store, I read this one article a long time ago. It was based on a study that stores are set up to make you grab stuff, buy more stuff. So they, like, inundate you with way too many options in hopes that it makes you buy. And they actually said in the study that this way of setting up kind of like shopping appeals to women because women will be distracted by all of the things and just grab it, which I think is bullshit. I'm like, oh, this is, this. I kid you not. Really? Right, I'm going to send you what this too, you too so we it? can put it in the notes. <laughs> <laughs> Like, we'll be distracted by options and we'll grab more and I'm like this is so stupid but the way that stores are set up is just for that so like for instance before top shop went I mean just up in flames which I'm really pissed, <laughs>
0: I'm <so> pissed. <laughs> I, I shouldn't even be laughing but I, I think it's, funny, it's so funny too but I'm pissed because
1: first of all they had my two favorite pairs of jeans they had a Joni jean and they had a Jamie jean Oh, girl.
0: You, know, you, who, girl, you know who you girl. talking to? Hell, yeah, same. Girl, same I, cried. I was like,
1: what do you mean? I was going out of business. These are the only
0: two that I went, to, I just, I, you crazy niggas, I just went there and I bought a whole bunch of stuff, but I went uh, to the girl, I was in Paris. I, I stopped at the Top Shop in Paris, and that's I was true. like, well, this is going to be my only Ready chance. So good to me. The right <laughs> thing. I'm
1: still like, I'm holding on I to this, sure because I need a pattern made out of it. Maybe I can talk to you about that. Maybe I'm going to give you, okay, we'll talk about that yeah. later.
0: So, Oh yeah! Like, you oh yeah, you're not me a so One of the okay. things
1: I saw that did that was really ignorant was that they would have a four-way of items and they would have one style in the front but then after about 10 pieces of clothing you'd go back behind and there'd be a completely different style. Now I'm not sure what the intention was in merchandising in that way but I can tell you what the results were. People do not go past the first few because I think that retailers have to understand the short attention span of the modern shopper. We have options at your fingertips. You can order stuff online. When you're going into the store, it's kind of an inconvenience anyway. So if you're lining up a four-way rack or any type of rack with multiple styles, the one closest to the back is probably not going to get seen. And that's going to contribute to your dead inventory. And then you have things that are too high up, that are just look like, you know, um, things in a museum. And they have to understand that when you're moving through a store, you're moving quick, you're looking for something. So if you if you hinder my ability to quickly find what I want, I'm going to just leave you. It's not, I'm not going to always take time and shift through. People don't always have that type of time. And I think that contributed, one of the things that contributed to Top Shop's demise is that they really didn't understand how to merchandise properly for their customers in different geographic locations. And I think that messed them up because they had a stuff sometimes. Sometimes they had great stuff. The second thing that messed them up is things did not fit correctly. You could see something fly on the rack. You go to put it on. You're like, who is this made for? Just who is this made for? And why doesn't it fit me? And I think had they done a better job of understanding their customers and communicating that, they would still be here.
0: Agreed. I totally agree with you. I just think there were so many issues.
1: But that just shows, like, the fit issue isn't just, like, you know, it's not just a curvy issue, which a lot of people think. As soon as you say fit, people are like, well, plus size people have lots of stuff. And you're like, it's not a plus size issue. It's an everybody issue. It's an everybody issue. issue Absolutely. Clothes aren't being made the same way that they used to be when they flattered a figure. They're just being made now based on costing and spending or how can we cut
0: quarters and, you know. They all made on costing. That's how I feel. Everything's made about costing and like that like that BOM is like crucial, you know, like that's what everything's being based on. And then it's also to me a buyer's world. So even like the licensee companies and stuff like that, they you know, they have like the sweetwear license or the handbag license. The buyers are still telling them what they need to sell. And then of course they're telling me what is what to design. So the buyers have turned into designers. And then the, the the production coordinators that are actually negotiating all of the pricing and stuff like that is throwing their hands into design too. Like you need to do something cheaper. So it's like the designer is no longer designing and they're no longer to me worried about the fit, even though all these companies have technical designers and they go through that process of having like the PP samples, the TOP samples, like that whole process. And if it doesn't fit, it doesn't even matter. Like once they're like, cause they can like keep rejecting it. And then the company is still like, well, we exactly. can let it ride. It's only $4. And I've had, you know, and I've worked in so many different companies within the industry that I've seen it happen all the time because I'm always in product development. So I'm always that middleman between design and production. So it's always just like production pushing back on price and then design, they try to push, but um, it'll never work out. (laughs) Especially in the the common thing is, well, we're making it for $3 or we're making it for $4. You know, the only time I ever had that exception is when I worked in ready to wear. And but she made everything domestically. So, of course, her fit, uh, you know, was on yeah, point. absolutely,
1: you know, and that's a very interesting thing that I think people need to understand about why this industry is shifting, because you have to, I get the profit point. I absolutely do. And this is a reflection of capitalism in general if we're going to maximize profits, we also have to maximize people. We have to maximize both shareholders Mm. and stakeholders. So I get that companies want to make money, but if you're doing all these things to cut all these corners and you get products in the store and one person tries it on and has a terrible experience and tells their network of 10 people, those 10 people tell other 10 people that product is done for. No one's going to come back and try it again. Nobody cares. And I think that. Companies think that you can afford to lose one customer. You cannot, because nowadays you're not only going to lose that one customer, you're going to lose their entire network. Because what people talk about more than what they like is what Mm -hmm. they don't like. So if they have a negative experience, if they didn't like it, if it didn't fit them well, it only takes a person saying it one time they have access to millions of people who they can now, you know, um, broadcast that information to, and now they can all make decisions on it. And with so many other options to shop with, you really can't afford to lose a customer period. So you have to change that design process. You have to think about the customer first, profit second. And I, and I keep saying to people that what we do with companies is help them match people to product simply. And what we also do is help them balance shareholder and stakeholder value. And sometimes people thought that was impossible, but it's not mm-hmm. because with a little bit of technology, a little bit of understanding the data, a little bit of customer feedback, you can actually create products that are more targeted for your intended customer, fit them better, things that they like, they'll understand it and then you can keep their loyalty because you only have one time to lose a customer. You have one time and, and it's just that it's very interesting because fashion is so reluctant and hesitant. We've been preaching about fit and just the concept of matching people to products since I came out of, I know since I came out of undergrad, I mean graduate school, and it's just now we're getting clients that are like, okay, I think we have a fit issue, and I'm like, you think? Why would you think? Why do you think you have a fit issue? Is it because it's not- yeah, it's because now it's not- you think
0: you got one? <laughs> Question for you. So for people that I guess like are new to like the like especially new designers I say it's a lot of people who listen to this podcast like they're really really trying to learn the business. Can you break down um, like what your services are and how it benefits Absolutely. like in the retail? I always say that emerging designers have the advantage
1: because they can invest properly in creating these supply chains that are agile and that have technology in them and that meet the needs of their customers. So what we do is we basically help emergent designers understand just like what you're saying when you when you've asked them who is your target customer we take it deeper and we're like okay what, do you, what technology can we implement that will help you reach that target customer, get feedback and data from that co- target customer, and you can push that up your supply chain so it can go to the designers, it can go to the buyers, it can go to the merchandisers, and you can create a better experience for your brand that bigger brands and retailers can't do because they're just not agile. So let's say people are like, okay, well, I want to do a lingerie line for curvy women and all this. And that's, okay. okay. I got one of those. I have
0: that, one of those first right of now. all, you need to be <laughs>
1: niche. You need to be niche because it's better to go deeper than to go wider right now. Because if you go wider and you miss people, then mm-hmm. you run the chance of losing more customers, like what we just talked about. But let's say you want to go niche and you're like, okay, we're a lingerie mm-hmm. company. We want to make lingerie for X type of woman. We have a factory. We have a designer. We have all this, but we want to make constant improvements. What we do is we go in and we say, okay, so walk me through your process of when the person is purchasing these products. Are they purchasing them in a store? Are they purchasing them online? How are you interacting with your customer? What data are you collecting from that data? What data are you pushing back to your design team? What data are you pushing out to your marketing team? And how are you utilizing that to keep the conversation going so that you can meet the needs of your customer constantly because you can't afford to not listen to your customer right now and whether that's a fit issue or they want to color or they want more options our goal is to just help you mitigate and understand those issues by integrating technology and processes properly because
0: go ahead yeah. so Wait, hold on. So, question uh-huh. so if someone was working with me like all these clients that i have and you know i start with the product development first and i'm like you know once the product development is done and we actually have the product and we have the fit and stuff like that down then we'll move into production i don't think that you should go into production not really understanding or Damn testing man. it out and figuring out what you need to make and put it on different people would you suggest that they reach out to you during the product development process or more so when I'm they're ready you. to Move into the Product development process
1: because once you
0: put that down payment okay. down for production uh, it's over <laughs> it's over <laughs> it's <break>. yeah okay <laughs> That's what I thought. Because I was thinking, like, right when they're like... And I wouldn't even say like when their samples are done. You would want to be integrated in there while exactly. we're creating their samples. Like maybe exactly. like in, during the fit, so, during like, the fit one process. One of the things we like to do is very okay. simple
1: that designers can do is during that fit process when you're taking notes and you're understanding and you're communicating with that fit model, that information is valuable information that you need to keep and pass on. So like a lot of mistakes that I see immersion designers do they have these amazing products that they spend so much time and money getting these samples development developed and doing all that and the, yes
0: exactly. and it,
1: and it shouldn't be <laughs> because this is a very important part of your business but they get to it in and it's site like, you look at the copy and the content and it's just not there so you're still missing the customer and that's one of the things we've helped to resolve is like so for a long time ago we we're working with this Really dope upcoming designer. And he's really famous now. But he was like, hey, I um overhaul because he was like, um, Kim Kardashian wore my dress. And our website got 5,000 hits and it only transferred to one order, which is insane. So we're oh. like, hmm, okay. that's interesting. I'm like, what yeah, was, I'm tell is i <laughs> I don't know what we can say.
0: But like... Uh... Okay, so yeah. you can say whatever here. you want. So
1: Laquan, Laquan had a dope product. Oh, Laquan okay. makes fabulous stuff. He's really dope. I feel like all. The- yeah. Okay, I think he and should that's be a, a lot bigger than what he is. For a different day, but one of the things that wasn't happening with his team, <laughs> not understand you're working with a smaller team, and you know they had an all black team, which was fantastic, but when you went on their website. You are mm-hmm. selling me $1,200 dresses, but I'm getting an experience where I have to go to PayPal to check out. I'm getting an experience where I click on the dress and there's no copy that tells me the fact it, how, what, what your sizing means. People think that sometimes you could just throw up a sizing chart and you cannot. because they're arbitrary you need to tell me give me a reference a visual reference show me other people in this dress tell me where it's going to be tight tell me where it's going to be loose tell me where it's this and the more expensive it is the more details you need to convey so one of the issues that he was having is the reason why you had five thousand hits or however many thousand hits it was like a ridiculous number and you only had like one or two orders is because the process didn't match the price point and you didn't have the right information there so that a person could appreciate the product, understand it, understand the fit, understand what they were going to get, manage their own expectations, and feel confident to check out. And that cost him money. And I say that to say that these are small things that don't even involve tech yet. We haven't even implemented any special technology. and We haven't even taken your uh, body measurements or anything like that. We're simply managing the expectations of the consumer properly through copying content copying content is a big part you lose a consumer when you don't have enough and you can't even collect the data of like why they left you're just going to see drop off you won't see the conversions that you want when it's online Mm -hmm. and it's just like a crazy thing because again immersion designers have this advantage where they can really be close to their consumer use the language their consumer needs and kind of answer the questions their consumers might have i think that we often assume that like somebody shopping online doesn't need the same amount of help they need in store, but having like worked in retail and, and I, yeah, they need as much. I've been in so many if not more where you're just kind of like, dear God, get me out of here. But to get that sell, people have an emotional response to fit. They have questions. They need to understand, like you know, in comparison to what I own, how is this going to do? Blah blah blah. You have to answer those questions and give an experience that is more concierge and less transactional, or you're going to lose your consumers. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, wow. we've been. And, and, you what we you know that? what? <laughs> I want to say something else. I want people who want to be emerging designers to get past the t shirt and hoodie phase, I want us past that
0: oh it, and I want to <laughs> <past it. laughs> yeah i get a lot of those that come to me and i don't necessarily yeah. reject them but i let them know that they don't need me for that you know i'm just like um that to me does not i, I can't like it's like even though i probably can this is like i cannot like i cannot like i actually focus on silhouettes and fit and clean and like a very very quality product and for me a t-shirt is fast fashion and my designers that i work with start at contemporary because there's no way for them to create garments in the U.S. Um, and make it fast fashion. Like, I don't do fast fashion. I have to, like, constantly reiterate that. That's, what, that's always my first question. Like, who's your target consumer and what's your pricing strategy? And people hit me with that. Oh, I don't want to sell up for more than 60. And I always laugh. And I was like, not in New York. You ain't. Yeah. You ain't. Here's the $60. I don't know what you thought. This maybe a T-shirt. Uh, you know, so it's like I end up, you know, that's why I have yeah. to do the consultations, you know, because. I get, you know, I get so many inquiries and so many people who want to be designers, but they don't have a clue. Um, and I'm just like where I am an educator. So I'm all for like classes and stuff like that. But before you decided to jump here first, did you do some research? Did you learn a little something about it? So it's always mind boggling to me that you want to start something, but you haven't done the work behind and my it thing to make is sure like, it's I totally agree. And it's like, if you're going to do it
1: and hoodies, <laughs> offer me something different. Than your wholesale hoodies and t-shirts, because like it because I love casual. Wear. Exactly. Do not get me wrong. I love a fly casual piece. It is who I am. If I can wear it with sneakers, it's still a bomb and have a good lip and my hair's late. I'm gonna do it. But it's like I want people to go beyond that. Give me a longer tee. Give me a tee with um, bell sleeves. Give me a hoodie that fits different. Give me fleece on the inside. Give me a little satin in the hood. Just at least be creative. And I think that people see these like brands on instagram and and things and they they don't realize like a brand is not a clothing line all the time they're not always the same if you have a brand and you can slap yeah. it on a hoodie that's one thing but everything slapped on a hoodie isn't a clothing line and everybody doesn't want to buy it and it's like you really have to sell more than just like kind of the hype you have to sell products that are fly if you're going to be a designer if you're going to come out and say like I'm a designer with a line and a collection it has to be fly or you just have to wait. Just wait. Because that bothers me too. I get a lot of people mm-hmm. who are like, can I use this? And I'm like, well, what type of products do you have? And then I, it's hoodies and t-shirts. And I'm like, well, you don't need technology per se. I mean, what do you, what is it that your goal is? And then we have to have a whole other conversation. It's kind of like, I don't want to discourage people, but I want them to understand like, you need to know your product and your audience and what they want. And then our job is to find the technology that helps you resolve those pain Mm -hmm. points so that you can sell and be successful and have loyal customers.
0: Absolutely. What would you say is the biggest um, challenges facing the fashion industry right now? Oh, no, I think we already talked about that. I'll tell you this. Oh, this is my question. Yeah. That and, like, um, what advice would you give to fashion business owners, like, right now facing, like, challenges within, like, because of this whole virus thing and, like, really needed to utilize the technology and, you know, maybe didn't take it serious at first or didn't have it at first. So what advice do you have for people facing, well, businesses facing challenges now and what you feel like the biggest challenges are facing the the fashion industry period? For
1: designers right now in this crisis. Um, mm-hmm. I think they're just going to have to understand how this consumer ha- behavior is going to happen right now. People may not want to shop as much because they're in like a state of uh, panic and they're afraid and they're holding on to dollars. We don't know where the next month dollars coming through. That's fine. But this is a great time to create content where you can collect data from your consumers. You can interact with them and be smart Change your resources and invest in reaching out to your consumers and really understanding who they are and what they want. Like, for instance, let's say you had some samples developed that you weren't sure that you were going to actually produce. Why not get those samples up on social media and do a survey and have your consumers vote on what they want to see? Get some interactions. Have people take pictures of um, themselves in your product. Use that for consumer reviews and feedback because people are home right now with nothing to do. Give them something to do. But use it as a time to collect data, use, put some very interesting surveys out there, get your customers in your products, give them a reward for it of some t- kind, like you could do a discount code or send them product. But now is a great time to mine information, to allocate resources towards your research and development, and to understand that even when this is all over, people are going to still prefer to shop online because people are going to be afraid about stores and large places. And I would turn my online sites into more interaction and less transactional. I would start looking up what type of technology can integrate to kind of wow your customer and get their information and kind of get them on their phones and get them interacting with you and get them hashtagging and tweeting because those are very important things to do. It's, Kind of a shitty time right now, but we're going to come out of this. And you, you're going to want to have a special bond and stay on the forefront of your customer's mind so that when they go back to work and it's time to live again and it's about to be summer and people want to be fly, meet them right where they are. And I think it's a, an important time to do that. And even like extend your customer service. Thank you. Thank
0: you. That is some great advice. <laughs> That is some great advice. I cannot wait into this episode here. But I feel like it's a, you know, you gotta see the, and I
1: I guess it's just, you know, we're entrepreneurs, so we always have to hustle. We always have to think about how do we turn shit into (laughs) quick because we don't have all day. And so one of the things that the fashion industry is facing right Mm -hmm. now is the breakdown of the supply chain and the issue of manufacturing. And I'm gonna tell you something. When this issue happened, my partner, Brittany Hicks, and I, we just decided we also have this joint company called Fairville Road. That's how we do all of our brunches and stuff through that company to just educate people on like fashion tech in general and try okay. to create a community around it. And so like um, we when the mass shortage happened, my my partner had been in supply chain and I've been in like um, in the textile world. We said, listen let's become importers so we can get products to people because the breakdown happened because all of our manufacturing got outsourced and so if we could have said hey we need a million masks a day made right now let's make it per state it doesn't exist and this is a huge problem and this is why people are going to have to vote and pay attention Mm -hmm. if they're going to want change because we've been discussing bringing local manufacturing back for the fashion industry for a long time and everyone's always like you can't do it because you're pricing out too high that's a lie mm-hmm. you can't do it
0: i just made oh just so you know just i made two lines of a uh, mass before this whole epidemic oh happened gosh, and so got them so this very is very very black price. women is the future of the world right <laughs> And they were both African. Yeah. One of them did um, African print cloths, and she's actually based out in DC. And the other ones, they have wow. literally took all theirs over to London, and they're both black. So two different designers. They wanted to do face masks before the epidemic wow. happened. One of them just wanted them as a fashion wow. statement, and the other one was an opera singer who wow. wanted to put out ones with different like music note quotes on them. And I, when I tell you, I got those like, wow. like a price that it couldn't even be matched overseas. Okay, so let's. And talk I got about them right that. here so done right here, down here, down here in NYC garment district.
1: Is a misunderstanding of how manufacturing has to come back to the United States, and it can be done in an affordable way. It's just not going to look like what it used to look like. And you have people yeah. in these decision making positions who cannot wrap their head around that concept, and they have to go. And that's the issue with fashion, because all of these things are p- possible. Mm-hmm. These new pricing strategies, they are possible. I I went to FIT City source and I heard um, Andy mm-hmm. Ward, he was talking about the-
0: Oh yes, that could be your talk there. Okay. Yeah, I was there, yes! that's what I mentioned. Yeah, I that's where we met. Them! In the was bathroom. Guys- <laughs> <laughs> this is so crazy. Right, but you
1: remember Andy right. Ward, at yeah, the right now? <laughs> how you can use the fast fashion model. He had some interesting things in there. But he said how you can use a fast fashion Mm -hmm. model to kind of produce um, things at a reasonable cost right here. And it's that type of thinking that we need Mm -hmm. in the fashion industry that doesn't exist. You have all these people who are like, we've done this for the last 20 years. I don't understand why we have to change. And those people have to get out of these positions. You're holding up progress. We have to manufacture here. And I wrote this article the other day about how I believe from state to state, When it comes to manufacturing, we're gonna have to use data to understand what percentage of the goods that are being sold in each state can be made locally so that in the event of anything, a pandemic, an epidemic, whatever, we need to be producing things and have the capability to produce, not only so that people can have these jobs so that we can be more self-sufficient. We have to decentralize this manufacturing industry. We have to bring our jobs back from China. We have to bring the proper technology into the supply chain and we have to do these things here because the whole reason why I went overseas was to cut corners, costs, and, you know, to cut jobs at the same time. And that's fine for these higher-ups and these CEOs. But we have people with skill sets that can be utilized right now so that we can produce. And we have to value stakeholders. Those are your employees. Those are the people going to be buying your products. Those are the people who do not benefit at the top of these supply chains. And that's our biggest issue with fashion right now, in my opinion.
0: Yes. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> like, Yes. <laughs> I'm just like that is that is it. And I just you just do not understand how excited I am right now. I'm just like all this information that I feel like people are lacking and you just gave it to them just like right. the whole game. I like, hired. Let's, right. pull let's pull it together. Pay attention and let's pull it together. No, so pull it
1: together. Is, we in a matter of a week found manufacturers who were originally doing other things who were FDA approved. We got them to say, yes, we can turn around and make these masks that are needed at a reasonable price. We did the paperwork, hit the ground running so that we could become suppliers and importers. And we've been working nonstop around the clock during this pandemic to at least supply people in North Carolina. And now we're going to supply people in Connecticut. We're going to supply people in other places because the whole breakdown was like people didn't even know where to begin to solve this issue with the supply chain. And it's like given both of our backgrounds, and you too, because we work in this mm-hmm. industry. We know what it means. We, we know how to take specs in a, in a tech pack and get something made and outsource it to somebody. The hardest part was simply finding the factories who were FDA approved so we could make mm-hmm. sure that the doctors and nurses had the right equipment and not just anything. But once we found that, we said like we're not mm-hmm. going to sit back knowing I have one of my best friends named Amber and my brother's fiance are both nurses. And the fact that they were scared to death to go do their job and we have the mm-hmm. means and the understanding to get this done. When I tell you in a matter of seven days, we went from saying, hey, I think we should try to get these masks into the U.S. to we are certified importers. Let's do it. and We're placing orders. It's been no joke. And, you know, it's, it was interesting because we got some pushback from people saying, why can't y'all donate masks? And this just shows how people don't understand supply chain. I said, so you want us to donate masks from a manufacturer who wants you to buy the masks And then you have to transport the mask into the U.S. You have to pay to get it here. You have to pay taxes on that mask. People who are donating masks have already purchased them. And that is the misconception. The masks that are being donated have already been purchased and they were stockpiled and sitting in a warehouse when Ebola happened and all these other things. The problem and even if you donate all of those masks, the issue is production could not supply the demand because it was too many broken links in the supply chain. So what we did was just mend those links and get the things flowing at a reasonable price so that hospitals can afford to buy them because they just got a grant to do so. It's a hospital's job for procurement. It's not our job to find free masks. It's our job to just help hospitals get to the supply that they need. And that is what we did. But had we had the manufacturer no they said how are we supposed to they want to try them? to donate them to donate their time and their jobs and their livelihoods donate your salary and we'll take your salary and we will get these masks in who needs them. right you know what i mean like if you feel that right. <laughs> right salary and i'll make sure we get the mask right. on it but it also let me know people have no idea about supply chain and how this industry really works period yep that's
0: what i yes more than anything, that's why I was they like, I don't you? Like, do even- We're asking people to go to work 24
1: hours around the clock to get these masks made.
0: We're asking people to do that. What I, said, right. I, I we said, can't donate so that. Like,
1: what someone who's really rich that you know who wants to do charity and they can donate to us X amount of money and we will purchase them on their behalf and donate them to the um hospitals, but either way. It's got to go, and this is how supply chain works. This is how products work. So when you're asked, when you're getting stuff for cheap and for the low, you're hurting somebody's business. You're asking people to cut corners and cut costs, and you want us to cut a mm-hmm. corner for a mask that protects you against a airborne disease? No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do this. So that's mm-hmm. my yeah. I said we're, we're, we're not, not going to do that, and we're not even going right. to we're not doing that conversations <laughs> because I was like, I don't have time to explain to everybody how that's just not how this works. If you're mad, read our uh, FAQ section or the website.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I I got a couple people who uh they didn't ask me, but they like sent like the things to me. And I'm like, there well is. if I got any clients that would like to make these, we'll make them without a doubt. But as far as like, anything, like, are y'all like trying to sew all of that, that and do that. But that's just not how we're set up
1: right okay. i'm like you can People put it in we ask, the like, we got damn, the like, equipment to do it you let's do it doing. i'm like you don't know america and you don't know products and so i can't get mad but i will use this as a time to educate that that's right. just how this works it's just not it
0: so yeah exactly so i feel i feel like you have just like achieved so much and you've accomplished so many goals like yeah. what's like you know, next for you like where do you see yourself in the next five years years um I would like to actually be able to
1: own a manufacturing uh, company here in the U.S. Oh, I'm, I love it. it says, Let's oh, do girl, we're on the same page. Way. We might need to go into business okay. together. Okay. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, I, I was would like, like, I, I put might put be the some um, same I'd way. I'd also like to see our business. Uh, I, I'd yeah. like to see Luxor and Finch expand as well as... Um, our uh, women of color events and all those things expand. And I was like, girl, in the next five years, I need to have invested properly so that I can have some kids and be married. I'm not trying to solve the world's problems forever. I love, <laughs> I love fashion, but I think after fashion, I'm like, right. to <laughs> clean energy and just supply chain in general because issue. Um, I think in the next five years, too, you'll see we're going to launch a platform, a tech mm-hmm. platform that helps, like, match people to products and resolve the fit issue. I want that up and running, and then mama wants some. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, that's
0: babies and a husband. I you. you, girl. That's me, I feel the same way in the next yeah. five years. Like, let me get this little business popping. Come on, hit. come on. So right. The you know, next five years, to- I'll be 35. Be so be I'm trying I'm to here. be
1: efficient, and I'm trying to hit the ground running with every project that we're doing because I, can't, I don't want to have to do this hustle forever. I want to sit back. I want to grow my investments. I want to, you know, me and my partner were talking about, I want a program for prisoners while they're in there so they can get trained on doing things with manufacturing. And then we can kind of take 50% of the salary that they're earning while in prison and save it for them when they come out for recidivism. I want programs like that so that fashion can be beneficial to people and save lives and help. I want to bring our manufacturing home to um, the U.S. of A. I want to have some uh, my tech company booming, and then I want to disappear. I want to make sure my family's straight, and I'm out. I want to practice making babies with my husband. <laughs> I want some time off. I want to get my ears trimmed regularly, and I w- I do not want to be in quarantine ever. Again. Feel it, okay.
0: <laughs> That's my thank you for having me. Energy. Well, thank you so much for joining. I just have one little last segment. Um, just like you know, any like readings because I know you're a writer. Um, any readings or events? Well, not events, but I usually have exhibits, events, and readings or events yeah. that you think people should attend. But I'm gonna Something just go with the read. readings. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you think people um, needs to read. I read
1: this book. Let me pull it up real quick because it's on my Kindle. Give me one second. It's one of my favorite books, and after watching the Madam C. J. Walker thing, I'm like, everyone, oh, I loved it so much for so many reasons. We yes, can't really get loved into, it. but when quarantine is over, we will. Because I was like, I was like, oh, this is real. Right. Um, there yes, is this book, and it is called Black Fortunes by O M A R I W I L L S, and it is about the first black millionaires post slavery. Brilliant book. It's so inspiring because you're like, people are always talking okay. about their limitations, and you have these people coming in right after slavery becoming millionaires. And it's just, I think Black people need to read it and absorb that information. And mm-hmm. Madam C.J. Walker's story is in there, so it's really.
0: Absolutely. nice. Can you I'm also, can you talk about something too? I want to make sure I put that in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to be buying that on Amazon tonight. Well, that is the end of our show, guys. Thanks, you all, for tuning in. And as I always say, stay black and peace out. I'll make sure I put all of Jessica's information in the show notes. And I hope you guys enjoyed our talk today. There was a lot of information there and so much for you guys. My skin is, oh. yeah. is, so right is, <laughs> is black. What you looking at? My skin I feel so good to be black right now. What you looking at? My is black. What you looking at?